welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. With, uh, I have the wonderful Nina with me again. Uh, Nina, it's good to see you. How is it in Brooklyn? Oh, it's pretty, it's pretty good, you know, getting ready for the holidays and uh, no, no snow here. I've heard you've had some snow there though. So, you know. Uh, not anymore. It, thankfully it rained last night. So all the snow has <laughs> gone. It's now a balmy 11 degrees. I don't have to have any more hot water bottles. <laughs> but um, who have we got today and uh, what are we talking about? Right. Well, today our guest is John Fraser King. He's a historian and a writer who founded the Shrewsbury Darwin Festival. He's been a appointed to Darwin officer for the local authority. And today, Chris, he's here to talk to us about a new book he's written, Charles Darwin in Shrewsbury. John, welcome. It's so good to have you here. Yeah, thank you for asking me. So uh, the first thing I need to know is I need to know what a Darwin officer is, because that's... Uh, okay. it's a, yeah. yeah. Well, well, we've never met a Darwin officer. <laughs> well, I, wa I was a Darwin officer. There is, there is a Darwin officer now who's just come into post, a guy called John Hughes. But back in the back in the day, sort of early two thousand three, I'd started the Darwin Festival, um, and then it occurred to me that the, the bicentenary was looming. It was like just a few years away, and nobody was prepping for it. So I lobbied the local authority and said, "You know, guys, the world's going to come to Shrewsbury in two thousand and nine. How are you going to be ready?" So yeah, they I lay claim to being the first, and at that time only. Uh, local government Darwin officer. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I hope I hope there was some good regalia that came with that. Yeah, there's no bling. You don't get any medals and stuff oh. like that. But but you know, yeah, it's it's a bit, a bit disappointing. A bit disappointing. But on yeah. the other hand, yes, major anniversary. You know, world significance and so on. So so uh, uh, excellent. So of course we're we're completely full of questions this morning. Yeah. But um, could we start by having you tell us a little bit and tell the audience a little bit about um, how did you become interested in Darwin in the first place? I mean, so many people are, but I'm, I'm well, I always, always love to ask our authors, you know, what, what got you started on this? What intrigued you and made you interested? Yeah, I mean, I, I confess to, to knowing hardly anything at all about Charles Darwin. Uh, I was a, uh, at the time at least, I was a presenter on BBC local radio and I'd get guests in. Uh, like I'm, a, I'm your guest. This is great. I'm a guest, but I used to be the presenter doing the doing the interviewing. And mm -hmm. a local amateur historian called uh, Henry Quinn came on my show and said, "You know, this is the birthplace of Charles Darwin. Why don't we make more of Charles Darwin in Shrewsbury?" And I confessed at the time I had no idea. So I basically applied my radio production skills, uh, brought together four or five key people. We met at the headquarters of the Shropshire Wildlife Trust. I said, look, guys, you know, in a few months time, it's going to be the birthday of Charles Darwin, 12th of February. You, you all put events on of some kind or other. Do me a favour. Everybody put an event on in the birthday week. Find me 500 quid and I'll print some brochures. And that was the start. That Fantastic. was the start. 
Yeah. But, the, but then this essentially what happened then was that the town has struggled, I would, I would say, to find its Darwin story. Okay, so so Downhouse in Kent, that's where all the work is done. That's where all the great writing is done. It's where he does all his research. Uh, you know, it's his, the garden, his, his laboratory, his children are his eager uh, assistants. What's, what's Shrewsbury's angle? What, 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 is, what is Shrewsbury's angle? And, and basically, uh, I was charged with, with finding it. What, what, what is the angle? And the bottom line essentially is, you know, uh, as Wordsworth said, the child is the father of the man. What happens to us in our formative years affects uh, who we are, who we become. Uh, we can either uh, go with the flow or we can rebel, but you cannot deny that it's cause and effect. Whatever happens to you, the places you go to, the things you're in, uh, 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 the things that you see, the experiences you have will, will form who you are. Now I'm, you know, uh, I'm a bit of a fan of Bourdieu, the, the, the French 20th century sociologist. He talks in right. terms of, of social and cultural capital. Right. Now, now that, that, that's a concept I can get hold of because I understand how lucky I am because of my upbringing. You know, my parents uh, put me, you know, took me to, to theatre, we went to historical locations. Music was all around the house. All of these things informed who I became. Uh, Darwin, interestingly, believes that, that none of that has any effect. Oh, that is interesting. He, he, he wrote that, that, that he, he wrote, um, I was born a naturalist. He, right. he, he says that any, all of that was innate in him. In other words, it, it was kind of hardwired into his brain. Um, so that, that's where, with the greatest respect, I would disagree with Charles Darwin. <laughs> no, I, I, I understand. And I do know from a, a tiny bit about, you know, his time in Shrewsbury. But, and, and one thing, for example, is that, um, you know, the house where he was born and grew up, if, if I've got that correct, mm. is in fact still there. And yeah, so yeah. you've got an opportunity to, you know, certainly it's well over, uh, you know, 200 years since the man himself was born. Yeah. But in terms of questions of location and what you were saying about Bordier and just, you know, material culture and so on and mm -hmm. what the landscape like, you know, once you get outside of the actual. Oh. Month, but I, I, I'm fascinated that he, he, he does use that as a yes, as if sprung from a seashell on the sea. Yeah, was yeah. It, it, I think, I think for me, for me, it's, we talk about Charles Darwin being the naturalist on the voyage to the Beagle, and then he then he moves to Downhouse in Kent and he writes all this stuff. I'm asking, why was Charles Darwin the naturalist on the Beagle? Right. Why, why him and nobody else? He's not he's, he's not a trained naturalist. When he when he's when he finally selected to be naturalist on the voyage to the Beagle, he isn't a trained naturalist right. at all. Right. He's not even on the short list when they come up with candidates for it. Interesting. Yeah, I had yeah. forgotten. Yeah. Uh, the, the, other, the other aspect of this is that, that, that when, he, when the opportunity did come his way, because of his um, experience, I'm sure we'll get onto this a little bit later on, because of his experiences at, at, at university, uh, this opportunity comes his way, he shows it to his father, and his father says, you can't go. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, okay. So yeah. Charles Darwin's not... Charles Darwin's not going to be the naturalist on the voyage of the Beagle, right. and is he? Unless people intercede on his behalf. And the, the story of Darwin's sort of first 30 years, because he, he doesn't leave Shrewsbury until he's 27. 
Right, right. The story of his sort of first three decades is all about mentors. I call them Charlie's angels. <laughs> the, these, these are the people who mentor Darwin. Yeah. These are the people who see something in him that his own father can't. Mm. And that's about perspective. And it's really interesting that, that you, you, you have a view of somebody because of your experience of them. But of course, when they're not there, you know, when his, when his son's, son's away, when Charlie's away at university and what have you, his father has no idea uh, what he's right. doing. Right. Uh, so so th there are people who have a completely polar view of Robert's son. Hmm. And, and only because of them does he become the naturalist on the voyage to be. So tell us, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make us come back to Shrewsbury and for, sure. for, for those of us, because it is, you know, we are, we are so distant in time and technology from when, when Darwin was born in 1809. Tell us a little bit about what was Shrewsbury like when Darwin was born? It's, you know, 1809, early yeah. in the 19th century. Change is happening. It's on the horizon. But What's, what's Shrewsbury like at that point? Well, in, in truth, if Darwin came back today, he wouldn't recognise most of Shrewsbury. Oh. Uh, the, the town itself is nestled on a, a, a mound of earth uh, oh. in the loop, in a loop of the River Severn. It's almost an island. It's oh. almost an island. In, in fact, when, uh, when the Norman Conquest happened, uh, William the Conqueror sent... Uh, uh, one of his trusted uh, knights to go and hold this bit of territory because there were lots of incursions by the Welsh. He was able to put a, a Motton Bailey fortification where Shrewsbury Castle presently is, mm. overlooking the only place you could get into town without getting your feet wet. Yeah. So right. it's, it's small, it's compact, it's narrow alleyways or shuts and passages as they're called. It is a, a catalogue of centuries of, of English architecture, Georgian terraces, Victorian houses, medieval timber-framed houses, absolutely beautiful town. Uh, Darwin's house, his father built the mount just out of, just out of the loop of the river. Uh, it has, and I, I sort of, when I started my work early on with this, I, I devised a walk around the town. Uh, at the time, the mount, Darwin's family home was actually the offices of the local district valuer. <laughs> you, you, could, you couldn't get in unless you knocked on the door and asked very nicely if they would let you in. So, so I, I had to find a way of telling Darwin's the story of his early years without right. even going to his birthplace. And I can do it. Yeah. I can do it. I can, I can take you to more buildings, historic buildings directly related to Darwin's early development in yeah. Shrewsbury than, than you could take me to Stratford-upon-Avon and show me ones related to William right. Shakespeare's early years. That's how rich yeah. the story is. The, the, his story is played out on the cobbled streets and the buildings of the town itself. Mm -hmm. And that for me is, 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 is something quite special. It's also great that it happens to be being born in a lovely town in a gorgeous county that looks beautiful. So right. we, we can't, we can't, we're kind of doing all right. We lucked out there, I think. <laughs> exactly. So, so here he is, his family is, family's quite affluent. Yes. His mother is a member of the Wedgwood family and she is herself an heiress, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. she, she, she inherits a fairly tidy sum uh -huh. of when her father dies. Yeah. He comes from, you know, his father is, is, uh, is, 
the son of a poet and you know a person who's important and famous in his own right mm-hmm. and, he's, and he's the fifth of six children so here he is he arrives um and it's a beautiful setting um I've, i haven't seen the interior of the house but you know i've of course i've seen images of the exterior yeah. uh, one assumes there are servants that you know the family is affluent and comfortable and so here he is he he arrives um and uh his parents are older now though they don't get married until they're 30 or something which while not uncommon perhaps for a gentleman surprising for a lady and um i know she also does not live very long after he's born he's is he eight when she he's, he's, he's eight years old when she passes it, it, it's quite sad really it's a it's an it's actually a pivotal age for darwin because um what what i was always keen to to sh- to to illustrate was mm-hmm. that shrewsbury's charles darwin isn't a balding bearded gray <laughs> old man he's right. an eight-year-old he's an yeah. eight-year-old boy Yes. Running around the meadows, collecting bugs and beetles and having the time of his life. That's Shrewsbury's Charles Darwin. Yes, absolutely. And there's a story in um, his autobiography, um, which you mentioned conveniently has been put online, which is wonderful for people like me, is that he gets in trouble for um, for, for scrumping apples. You know, he's yeah, yeah. apples and he... He gets in trouble in town for trying to get goods without paying for them and all sorts of, you know, schoolboy kind of naughtiness that yeah. someone who comes from a fairly illustrious family can can get away with. Yeah, he's, he's born. He is born into what you might call privilege, really. Yes. Uh, and the other thing to, to understand, really, I mean, you talked about his mother coming into money. There's a lot of money in the family. In fact, you know, uh, 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 they, they sort of the, the cousins keep marrying. They keep the money. They keep the money in that in the family. Yeah. Uh, so so when when Darwin's uh, when he's in Edinburgh and he's supposed to be studying to become a doctor uh, with his brother, also called Erasmus, um, they quickly work out that that they will be coming into money. And, and I don't mean when Papa dies, they're right. going to come into money. That, that's it, literally. Uh, there's a tradition of saying, okay, uh, when when you marry, we will buy your house for you. Exactly. You know, you, you, he he doesn't have to do a, a, a jot of work for the rest of his life. There's no yeah. need to do that. In fact, talking about his brother Erasmus, uh, I mean, Erasmus was was studying to be a doctor. Uh, Darwin says, I didn't believe for a moment he would ever practice. When <laughs> Erasmus left Edinburgh, he began to practice a bit as a doctor. His heart wasn't really in it. He had some health problems. So, uh, so his father says, okay, well, I'll, I'll set you up. You can retire. He's 26. Wow. It yeah. was Darwin, re- retire, the, the junior, you know, he's Darwin's right. brother, retires in his mid-20s. Yeah. So, so you could say that, that, that Darwin didn't need to do anything. There was no compunction. There was no, he wasn't compelled to do anything at all. His father didn't want him to become part of the idle rich, so he wanted him to have a profession because yes. it, was a ma- it was a matter of family pride. So what wealth and privilege and comfort give him, give Darwin specifically, is, the op- is the, an opportunity to explore his passions. And because of this sort of illustrious legacy, I know we, we touched very quickly on the fact that, you know, his mother is Wedgwood. Mm. 
grandfather is a poet, but are we are we missing other people in the family who 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 we should know about? Sort of as this, you know, that gives him, you know, the background that there are family traditions and family sorts of just sort mm. of his identity as a member of, you know, the Wedgwood family, as a member of the Darwin family, and so on. You let, let's go back to his grandparents' parents' generation. Erasmus Darwin was the founding father of the Lunar Society. You know, so 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 uh, highly yeah. intellectual, learned, extremely important. Exactly. They are so so. Uh, Josiah Wedgwood, Erasmus Darwin, Matthew Bolton, uh, uh, William Withering, who who actually was born in the town where I live. <laughs> You know the, the guy guy who made the Fox Club into Digitalis and gave us heart meds. Right. But these were these were polymaths. This is I mean they fascinate me. These 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 people. They were all men. But but, but there we go. That was that's something of the age. Unfortunately, and we we forget too quickly. Uh, history forgets too quickly that the, the contribution of women to science. But anyway, they are polymaths. They are interested in all sorts of things. They're self-taught in lots of things. Uh, Joseph Priestley is one of the lunar men, a guy who discovers oxygen and gave us fizzy drinks, is right. a lunar man. He's also a Unitarian. Exactly. Now, now here, here's the thing. You've got, if you combine this, uh, if you like, uh, a willingness uh, to be curious, a freedom to ask questions, it becomes almost a, a, a culture within the family that it's all right to ask. So the Unitarian faith, his, his mother, Susanna, takes him to the Unitarian church, which is still there in Shrewsbury, until he's eight years old. There's a plaque outside that says that this is a Judeo-Christian tradition uh, open to insights from world faith, reason and science. Mm, yeah, it's, very different. So yeah. it's all right to look outside the book yeah. Okay. You don't take anything as settled or fixed. Mm. You are you are free to ask. What Darwin wanted. Darwin's interest. There was a, there was a huge amount of interest uh, in, in Darwin's early years around around natural history, and many of the natural historians were uh, men of the clergy. Right. Right. There was, exactly. there was almost there was almost a, 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 a com they were almost felt compelled to uh, to record. Uh, and and wonder at God's creation. That that's where they were coming from, right? So so that was all about saying, isn't all of this wonderful and beautiful and gorgeous and intricate and what have you? Isn't that all fantastic? Darwin is looking at it and saying, but why? Right, right. Why is it like this? Yeah. Why does what, why does why does that look like that? Yeah. How did it come to look like that? And, and the, the this is the, this is the I mean essentially at the heart of the book is 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 the is a is a tenet that I've I kind of developed over a number of years. But it's the, it, trying to distill what the what what made the difference, what what made Darwin who he is. One of and I call them the three pillars, and one of them is nonconformism. Absolutely. What, yeah. One of them is that is that freedom to ask and to question, uh, a belief that you don't have all the answers. And you, you, you know, you, you need to appreciate that you need to look to find them. That's a key one. The other one, I mean, the landscape of, of Shropshire, apart from being gorgeous, uh, for its size, has a greater variety of geological periods than probably anywhere else in the world. I mean, Peter Tolkill, who wrote, the, the, uh, who wrote a book on the geology of Shropshire, talks about how, how incredibly varied it is. Now, if you're going to come up with a crazy notion like 
um, a, a, you know, evolution, tiny, tiny incremental changes over generations and generations and generations. It's complete and utter nonsense if the world isn't as old as we know it to be. And Darwin is born in a county with, I don't know what the, what the latest figure is. I think it's something like 11 of the 13 geological periods. It's insane. It's, you know, we've, we've got sandstone cliffs. We've got, we've got uh, uh, Wenlock Edge, which, which a name a name that will be familiar to many people from A.E. Hasman's Shropshire Lad, uh, is riven with tiny marine fossils from oceans that aren't even here anymore. Mm. I can take you to a, a, a quarry, a disused quarry, which is a mile and a half from my home, and I will show you a huge slab of rock that is fossilized seabed. It literally ripples of sand. Wow. And we are 40, 50, I don't know, miles away from the sea. Yeah. But then again, you know, Shropshire has traveled from 60 degrees south of the equator. We've been on a very long journey and we're picking up bits as we go, you know? <laughs> so here he is, he's surrounded by all this yeah. visual stimuli. Yeah, and yeah. Something that will, that is going to feed into, if, if, if I understand your earlier point, feed into an intellectual tradition in his yes. family asking questions, observing the natural world and having an open mind or asking questions um, at the same time is because he's a privileged young man, he has the freedom to roam around, yeah. collect, you know, critters and bugs and look at plants and mm. look at the, I, I had no idea that Shrewsbury was that complex geologically. That's oh, just another, it's, another it's, gift. It's, it's astounding. It? You know, we've got, there, there, uh, there's volcanic, there's volcanic stone again, just a, a three quarters of a mile from where I'm talking to you now. Pink, beautiful pink. Well, remnants of volcanic activity. There's all of those elements as well. But interestingly, when I mean, you talk about the family and the family culture and everything, the, the, yes. the, Darwin's parents kept garden diaries, right? So mm -hmm. these are detailed garden diaries. They were recording the life, the development of their garden. So Darwin was being taught from a very early age to observe and record. Now, you know, that's at the, that's the heart mm -hmm. of scientific exploration. So, he, he, so he's, he's learning that discipline from a small age. He has an innate curiosity, uh, a, a, a burning curiosity to understand the natural world around him. He has permission to ask the questions and to make that exploration. And, uh, and I'm gonna talk about the geology. Geology really is the first formal natural science that Darwin engages with, he, even though he's not supposed to be doing it. He's at Edinburgh. But he falls in with Robert Grant, who, who's one of the one of these one of Charlie's angels, one of his mentors, uh, and just goes, ah, right, yes, geology. I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna do. Uh, and and uh, and and so off he goes, and that's the start, really, of it all. And on all of this this fascination, he's following this. He's attending lectures that he's supposed to attend. Okay, you know, but he doesn't want to be a doctor. But right. he's also attending all these other lectures. He's finding these people out. He's like a limpet. He clings to these people. When he's at Cambridge University, he attaches himself to John Stevens Henslow. And, he's, and, and Darwin's nickname was the man who walks with Henslow. So he, <laughs> he, he just kind of, he, he attaches himself to these people and feeds off them. Uh, but not to the point that he's a nuisance. They, they, love, they love him for it. These, these are the people who will, who will support him, nurture him, promote him. 
right uh, and, and 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 that's how he gets that's how he gets where he's going so to some extent it's a case of it's not what you know but who you know yes <laughs> you know i can i can see that 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 places plays a significant role so um i know he i know he does you know he goes up with his brother to edinburgh mm. before that though when he's a young man um what is his what's his early schooling like is there anyone that he meets early on who has an influence anyone that he you know that 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 comes up in his later correspondence or he stays in touch with during those early years or or is he having sort of the the average you know upper middle class schoolboy experience and yeah. it's not till later that he becomes intrigued by well, interesting. There's an there's an incident that happens every every year on his on Darwin's birthday on the twelfth of February at noon. Uh, we drink a toast to Charles, <laughs> and we what? don't drink it at the birthplace. We drink it at, uh, alongside the Bellstone. Ah. The Bellstone. It's a large boulder, granite boulder. Um, yeah. It it was possibly at one time used as a parish boundary, but now it stands on a plinth in a courtyard in the right in the heart of the town of Shrewsbury. Mm. It is an erratic boulder. Hmm. So you'd have to go, you'd have to travel from Shrewsbury up to uh, the Scottish borders, or at least as far as Cumbria, which is, which is some considerable distance, yes. to find that kind of stone extant in the, in the landscape. A natural, a, a, an amateur natural historian said to Charles when he was a small boy, uh, because they, they, they knew it wasn't from around these parts, but they didn't know how it got there. You know, right. who, 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 who heaved that onto the back of a horse and cart and drove <laughs> it all the way to Shrewsbury? Right. You know, why, why would you do that? That's, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Mr. Cotton, Mr. Cotton says to, to Charles Darwin, the world will come to an end before we learn how this stone came to rest here. Interesting. That's why we have the toast there, because that basically, for me, that's like a red rag to a bull. Absolutely. I was just saying, what do you mean we'll never know? Have yeah. you asked? <laughs> have, you, have you done any investigation? Yeah. You know, are, are you just saying that because you can't be bothered? What, why? <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, just a few, literally just a few years later, He's in Edinburgh University. He's sitting in a geology lecture where they're talking about the last great ice age, ah, about, the, about the passage of, or, or the journey, the, the, how the, the great glaciers, these huge walls of ice, right. you know, uh, marched across the land and carved out you know, great valleys and, and moved stones much bigger than the Bellstone, huge distances. And, he remembers back to what Mr. Coton said to him, and he, he said, and, and I marveled at the progress of geology. Yeah, right. It's, right. Things, it's little things like that, that, that kind of, uh, they're almost sort of saying, to, he's saying to himself, I was right. I, I was right. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, perceived <laughs> wisdom might say, oh, no, this is the way we're all going to think. And he's going, no. <laughs> 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 that's a great story that's 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 a terrific a terrific story so he does he goes up to edinburgh and you've you've talked a little bit about the fact that you know although in theory he he and his brother are meant to be studying yeah, to be doctors 
that's not really, you know, neither of them end up end up doing that. And you've talked you've talked a bit about, you know, some of his his mentors and his uh, up at Edinburgh and also in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. When he's not at the university, um, either of them, it, it, what what is he doing in his free time? Is he, you know, gallivanting about the countryside, meeting young ladies? Is he going on walks? What is what's Charles doing during this period? Because as you noticed, you know, as you noted earlier, rather, you know, he doesn't he doesn't really leave home until he's you know twenty seven. Yeah, yeah. He's got he's got a lot of time on his hands to pursue things he's interested in. What is what is he doing in his free time? He's uh, he's shooting birds. Oh, He is slaughtering the bird population of Shropshire. <laughs> Pigeons, um, pheasants, partridge, anything you can aim his musket at. And he's he's very good at it too. Right. Robert Darwin's clientele, apart from some of the townsfolk, are are his patients, many of them are from the landed gentry in in these big stately home type mansions that are are sort of satellited all around uh, the town itself. So his social circle, he, let's call him, say, upper middle class, let's right. say, right. But his social circle are the children of the idle rich. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he can go and shoot at somebody's estate because they want him to. His first girlfriend, Fanny Owen, her, her dad thought he was terrific. And, and she writes to him once and says, oh, it's a shame he didn't come because father really wanted you to come and go shooting with him this weekend. Mm. Um, his uncle Jos, Josiah Wedgwood II, lives yeah. at Mayor Hall, which is still there. Uh, it's, it's just across the border into Staffordshire. Uh, and, and Darwin remembers idyllic, idyllic time spent there, you know, again, shooting and fishing, but also listening to music in the parlour and what have you. Um, when he's at uni, um, he's having a great time. He's a student. Well, you know, he says, I, I fell in with some dissipated youths. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they they like to drink or two and they carouse and sing, although Darwin couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, he confesses himself. But he he had a good time. There's one occasion when he he arranged to meet some chums, some university chums at at Barmouth, and they were going to do a little bit of geology because it's fantastic. That's North uh, Wales is fascinating. And he went there after he went there with Adam Sedgwick from, from Cambridge University. But, you know, they're, they're about, they're all getting themselves togged up and they're going to go marching off and look at flora and fauna. And yep. it dawns on Darwin, it's the first day of the partridge shooting season. So he left them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He, he said, and he says, I, I, I thought myself mad not to take advantage of the first day of the shooting season for whatever <laughs> other reason. And they're like, okay. Dedication to science, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, he, he was—he was just a young man. He was—he's—he's he's a funny guy. There's a, there's a Van, Vanity Fair is a, a historical magazine that was printed in in, in a, of course. Yes, I'm and there's a there's a wonderful caricature, admittedly of Darwin in his in his later years. Sure. How does a caricature work? I know you've ever had your had your caricature done by a cartoonist, but they they pick out. Yes. <laughs> things, yeah, yeah. They pick out things about you that, that right and exaggerate them, what have you. And so all the photographs, of, the photographs of, of, of the elderly Charles Darwin looks really dour and yes. serious. Yeah. But this is a guy who's sitting there. He's got his. He's got his. He's sitting in his 
uh, chair in his, in his study and he's wrapped his sort of coiled his legs around each other and he's got the most impish grin you can imagine <laughs> he looks like he's just told a filthy joke and, and 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 i think this is the thing he he was he he was a i i think a lot of this is about just say look he was a human being right <laughs> he was a real yes. person he, he, he yes. you know when when he left shrewsbury school uh, he was considered an ordinary boy right Interesting. It, 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 there was no, this is this is coming back to perspective now. Yes. And his father agreed. He's yeah. just an ordinary boy. Because what was Shrewsbury School at the time? It was the classics. It was learning Homer by rote. He was having right. to memorize passages of Homer. He's bored, rigid. Yes. He's forced to do all this. And when his mind is racing in a different direction, I think there's a lesson here for us when we look at. Uh, you know, ADHD or, 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 or just children who don't appear to be want to, to concentrate in class. It isn't necessarily because they're naughty or that yeah. they're not bright. Their mind is working or racing at a different pace to the other pupils in the class. And I think that's, that's what, what, what Darwin is. Uh, because as I say, he, 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 I mean, he, the reason he, did, the reason he didn't, didn't want to become a doctor uh, mm. is that an incident happened when he was at a lecture uh, and uh, he witnessed an operation on a small boy pre-anesthesia yeah. Yeah. right there is there is no anesthesia and he had he had to sit there and watch the two two operations on small yeah. children without anesthesia yeah that would and he thought, do you know what that's really not for me uh, that's not for me. I don't want to do this. Yeah. What, what he did, I mean, talk about mentors. Well, I'll tell you who he did meet in Edinburgh. He met a guy called John Edmundstone. Mm. John Edmundstone was a freed slave. Mm. And Edmundstone taught Darwin taxidermy. All right. He paid, uh, he paid this guy, I can't remember who it was, it was a few guineas. He said, he writes to his sister and said, he ha it has the benefit of being quite cheap. <laughs> but, but actually, but actually, uh, what, what really? I mean, he 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 sought John out, other than having the lessons, um, and and what that was doing again was broadening Darwin's horizons. He was learning more. Uh, Josiah Wedgwood the first was a famous abolitionist, very yes. anti-slavery. Yes. On the voyage of the Beagle, Charles has a run-in with Fitzroy. When Fitzroy comes back on board, he just visited a plantation. And, he, and they get into conversation and he says to Charles, well, I was with I was with the plantation owner who asked the slaves in my presence whether they whether they minded being slaves. And they all said no. And Charles says, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Really? Yeah. You know, the, 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 you're there with the what are they also going to say? The plantation owner standing beside you. They had a bit of a fallout on that one. They, they fall out about a few things, actually. But there we go. So. <laughs> Interesting. How close, how close was Darwin to his brothers and sisters? Um, I haven't had the chance to, to go through the, the wonderful online collection of letters. Mm. But, uh, I know that you did in order to, to research and prepare for the book. How did you get a sense of, did he have close relationships? Was there a particular brother or sister or, you know, was, as, was this just again, another, an ordinary boy in a you know, <laughs> family of six getting into scrapes and being one of the younger ones? Yeah, there's, there's a bit of everything really, but, but I mean, okay, so, so his first tutor was his sister Caroline. Right. Now, 
that suggests to me, and again, you talk about, we talk, I mentioned cultural capital and social capital, which is sort of the, 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 the family unit and, uh, and, and the, the, the sort of nuclear family and the friends and, and connections around it, that they're saying, well, look, you know, we, we're not going to wait until you start school, Charles. Yeah. You're going to learn, start learning now. Mm -hmm. um, she was trying to, she was doing her best. I, I mean, I do feel for her because Charles wasn't interested at the time. <laughs> but she was doing her best to teach him. And, uh, and uh, I think she was coming a little over a little bit too strict. Mm -hmm. And he used to say, he used to say that, if he was going to enter a room and she knew Caroline was already in the room, he'd say, to, what's she going to blame me for now? <laughs> so, so that was, that was a bit of a tricky one. Right. His brother Raz, they were great friends. And at the, at the house, in the outbuildings beside the house, um, Raz and Charles uh, undertook chemistry experiments. Ah, yes. Right. Uh, Charles's school chums found out about this and nicknamed him Gas. At least, <laughs> at least we think that's why they nicknamed him Gas. But, um, <laughs> So, so he's doing experimentations in chemistry uh, with his brother, uh, and they went together at the, at, to, to Edinburgh together. Although Erasmus was just finishing as Charles arrived, so there were there were connections with that. And he wrote to his family regularly. He, uh, the copious letters on the voyage of the Beagle back home. It's, you know, this is how it's all going, and what have you. Uh, you know, when his when his father finally agreed to let him go, I think he thought he, he hoped, as, as Joss, Uncle Joss said. It would be character building, exactly. but, but when you but when you think Ch Charles isn't a trained naturalist, he goes on the voyage of the big. He starts sending stuff back, specimens, loads and loads of specimens, sending all this stuff back. Now he Charles doesn't know it, but back at Cambridge, people are just beside themselves with excitement. Yeah. Oh my! Have you seen this stuff that's coming back? Yeah. And at, at one point, Adam Sedgwick. Who, who isn't, he, 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 uh, Darwin went up to, on the geology tour with him, but Henslow was his real mentor. Right. Sedgwick travelled to Shrewsbury while Charles is on the voyage of the Beagle, knocks on the door and introduces himself to Robert Darwin and says something along the lines of, you know, when your son returns, he must take his place amongst the great men of science. And Robert must have thought, Charles? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Have you got the right house? Yeah, really. Are you sure you're knocked to the right door? Yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So, so, so it's, it's that, that sort of understanding. What, when it came to the Voyage of the Beagle, basically, the, 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 you know, Fitzroy wanted to do the circumnavigation of the globe. It wasn't the first time it had been done, but he right. wanted it to have some, some merit. He wanted a, a man of science with him. Right. And the idea was that they would have a, 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 a non-paying, an amateur, a naturalist, uh, right. On board with him, he'd share the cabin with Fitzroy, and 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 actually, there's a there's a sort of a uh, uh, another ulterior motive here. If you're the captain of a relatively small uh, uh, naval vessel, um, mm. it's a lonely position. You can't have friends amongst the crew. You can't have friends amongst the officers. No, who, no. who can you sit down and share a glass of Madeira and have a good old chinwag with? So, so there's there's an ulterior motive there. So uh, Fitzroy doesn't know anybody in that milieu. He, he doesn't know anybody in the academic area. So he co contacts his friend in the Admiralty, uh, Francis Beaufort, as in the Beaufort scale, empirical right. measure of wind, sure. which is used for the first time on the Voyage of the Beagle, by the way. Um, and Beaufort says, well, I, I, the, only, the only academic person I know is a, a mathematician at Cambridge, a chap called George Peacock. 
but I'll happily, you know, pass the message on and here's what the offer is. Uh, and Peacock says, well, I know, I know exactly, I, I, well, I've got two names in mind, but one of them, definitely, this is the guy you want, and his name is John Stevens Henslow. That's who you want for the naturalist on the voyage to Beagle. Uh, barring him, his brother-in-law, the Reverend Leonard Jennings, is a very keen naturalist. So though, that's my shortlist for you. That's my shortlist for yeah. naturalist on the voyage of the Beagle. Right. One of these chaps is who you want. Yes. That, they, these, you, these are your guys. Now, the offer comes to them and they both, for various reasons, mostly around responsibilities, professionally yeah. and to their, to their uh, parish and what have you, say, well, look, look we can't go. But, but here's the thing. Both of them agree on who really should be the mm. candidate the voyage of the beagle because they have both met on many occasions because darwin is invited to dinner with henslow on many occasions he's sitting there as, as a sort of a, a a pale young man surrounded by dons you know professors and ministers these people are like 20 years older than him and this is this is but they see in him a real spark so so that's how the invite comes right He's actually, he's actually with Sedgwick in Wales uh, yeah. at Comidwell, which is an amazing place, uh, and comes back and the letter's waiting for him. Mm. But, you know, as, as I said earlier on, when, when he shows you to his father, he says, you, you can't go. Look, right. I, yeah. I, 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 look I sent, you, didn't, you didn't do brilliantly at Shrewsbury School. I sent <laughs> you to Edinburgh and you won't be a doctor. I yeah. sent you to Cambridge and you won't be a minister. You, don't, you, won't, you won't become a, a reverend. You know, right. sort yourself out. Come on, pull yourself together. And, and says, you can't go. And Darwin has yeah. to write and say, I, I, I'd, re I'd really like to come, but my dad says no. Yeah, right, my wow. father. He, my yeah. father says no. One caveat, Robert says, if you can find someone of common sense who might change my mind, well, let's, we, we, may, we might discuss it again. And, and Darwin knows exactly who that is. And that's Uncle Joss. Right. Josiah Wedgwood. He charges up to Mayor quickly as he can. Joss says, yes, I'll come back and talk to you. Because, because again, see, Joss has seen a different side of Darwin to, his, to Darwin's own father. He sees this engaging young man. He's, he's bright. He's, he's, he's funny. Uh, it, it, it just, it, it's just full of energy. Joss sees this. So uh, he, he persuades Robert to change his mind. But Darwin's always said no. Ah, right. So now he's stuck. So, so now he's stuck because the job might have gone. The, the gig might not be there anymore. So he has to write again. Oh, look, do you remember? Hi, remember me? <laughs> Charles Darwin? Yeah, remember? And I said I couldn't go. Uh, Dad's changed his mind. Um, so um, I still can go. I still go? Yeah. And uh, Robert says, well, actually, Robert, uh, Robert Fitzroy is into... Um, he, he's into this sort of that pseudoscience around the shapes of heads and noses oh, and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? Phrenology, is it? Uh, and on the basis of that, he didn't think that Darwin was up to the job. <laughs> but, he, but, he did, but he did change his mind, more out of desperation, because I think he hadn't got anybody else in mind. So if you pull that together, you think, yeah. Charles Darwin was the naturalist on the Voyage of the Beagle. Yeah, only just... Yeah, that's that's a and of course, as 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 everyone who, you know, who who knows something about Darwin knows that this is this is the thing. This is the pivotal event that is going to lead to you know pretty much everything else for him. If you wanted to leave us with with a thought about 
Darwin's, we've talked about so many great things about, you know, mm. Darwin literally and figuratively grounded in Shrewsbury um, about his family, the traditions of his family, the intervention of his uncle so that he can go, go on the Beagle. His, his early life is, you know, kind of an ordinary schoolboy, you know, nobody going, wow, Charlie is really smart, you know, <laughs> to, to a certain extent, his early life, while clearly having an impact, having an effect on, on who he becomes and how he gets opportunities, there is a certain amount of being in the right place at the right time. Absolutely, has has, has an impact. Mm. Um, so my, I guess, I guess my last question is: Does he ever return to Shrewsbury? Because of course, you know, he leaves, he marries. Mm establishes himself as you said you know sort of the center of the darwin cult is in a very different place does he ever return to shrewsbury very very briefly the it, one yeah. of his sisters i can't remember her name but one of his sisters uh remains at the house never marries yes. uh, and then eventually there is a sale the house is sold and every plant in the garden is sold up in the lots yeah it's really sad it's really sad right exactly. darwin, darwin comes back just before that happens uh, and then that's it then and he, he severs all his ties with shrewsbury right. um you know i, I think the, the thing is he, he, the book is called uh, charles darwin in shrewsbury the making of a marvelous mind right. and i think what i wanted to do and you could do this exercise with any great any great figure is say okay well we, we know what they did but how did they get to the place where they could do what they did Exactly. And, and so, so coming back to the original ideas, well, what, what Shro who or what is Shrewsbury's Darwin? Sh Shrewsbury's Darwin is a work in progress. Right. Yeah. That's what Shrewsbury's Darwin is. That's, I, think that, I think that's a terrific way to sum it up. And um, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, John. Greatly appreciated. Chris, would you like to, uh, would you like to come full circle and end our interesting, our interesting talk today here on History Hack with uh, with John Fraser King. Yeah, John, just to add in that I have really enjoyed it. I've been saying, listening to you. You've mentioned the name of the book. Could you, um, it's not out yet, is it? Or is it from... It's, it's, it's published on the 18th of January by Amberley Publishing. Great. So, hopefully by the time... An, yeah, and there's an accompanying exhibition at Shrewsbury Museum and Art Gallery for two months, which opens at the same time. And it's based on the premise of the book. So it's, it's again, it's Shrewsbury putting its best foot forward Absolutely. in that I will, respect. I will, uh, I'll make sure I plug it on the, uh, on the History Hack social media as well. So yeah, John, thank you for ever so much for coming and speaking to us about Darwin. It's been really, really interesting. And thanks very much and good luck with the book. My absolute pleasure. Thanks again, John. Lovely to get to talk to you today on History Hack. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.